Hey everyone, this is Allison Lee, the host here at the Craftcast Studio, and on today's show I'll be talking to America's foremost creative coach, Eric Maisel, as well as sharing with you all kinds of other stuff, new and happening things here in the Craftcast Studio. So let's get started. Show number 152. Starting the day again, oh yeah, letting the sun shine in, uh-oh, I'm gonna dig within myself. Uh oh. Life may be never what you think, but I think I'll just go with it and create something new. Just get yourself right into your chair. Come on, listen, you can learn to create something new. Well, hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another week here at the Craftcast Studio. It's me, Allison Lee, your host here. Oh, yes, your host here from the from the microphone, sitting here in the studio. Uh, unfortunately, it's still sort of, can I even believe I'm saying this word, on April 1st, snowing. And that is not an April Fool's joke. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, oh, poo. But I did fall for a great April Fool's joke just now. Oh, so unfair. You know, if you've listened to the show before, then I'm a uh, a big fan of the Apple products and the Apple store. And my son sent me a link. There's a wonderful um, toy for kids called Playmobil. It's uh, like a Lego, only different. And my son grew up loving those. And he always would build things, of course, like the... Um, recording studios and the uh actually we had a great one that was a circus anyway he sends me a link that there's a new one out that just came out and it's build your own apple store complete with the genius bar and an even an add-on set with all these people that line up in front of the door like a whole bunch of people uh, lining up for a new product release i'm like oh my gosh i have to get that right away i love that and then when you click it it's april fools <laughs> and they they have all these fabulous pictures of it already done anyway April Fools. <laughs> I fell for it. I was excited by that. So uh, that's enough little April foolery for me today is all I can say. So there. Uh, but what else is happening here? Well, I just keep, I can't believe even last week I had to say the same thing with the snow, even though there are some snowdrop flowers and some crocuses sticking up and a few little daffodils. But for some reason, the snow just won't stop this winter. And uh, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. There you go. Because what I've done each day that it snowed, I've gone out and bought, uh, last week it was sandals, and yesterday it was uh, a linen short skirt. I couldn't find shorts, so I got the skirt. That's how I'm dealing with it. That's all I'm going to say. So poo on that. I'm ready for spring. Hmm. Uh, but I am going to L.A. soon. I'm going to L.A. Uh, in April in about two weeks. And uh, so I'm very excited. I'm going to take a big old capital V-A-C-A-T-I-O-N. And I am excited, excited to do that, play with my son out there, see him opening in uh, his new play, Temperamentals, at the Blank Theater Company, if you're in Los Angeles. So what else? Well, I have some, here's a funny story. Uh, I've been reviewing some apps, so I'm going to review one and tell you a little story. I came home one night last week, and lo and behold, could not find my iPhone, and then uh, took my 
dear partner's phone there, Mr. Jan, and said, okay, I've got to find it. It's somewhere in the house. And I started dialing myself, and I'm in a big Victorian, and there's a bunch of floors, so I walked from each floor, and lo and behold, never heard my phone ringing, and then realized, ruh-roh, phone's not here at home with me. Where is it? So I went online right away to the app called Find My iPhone, and put in my number, and up comes a Google map with the, you know, when you see the little, if you've used the maps and it shows you where you are, there's a blue dot that sort of radiates blinking. Well, that blue dot was now my phone and it was blinking in town up the street from home. And it was late at night. So there I was in my flannels, PGAs, (laughs) and I threw on my coat and my boots and I ran out and I jumped in my car and went up the street again, still holding Jan's phone. And when I got to where the blue dot was, I jumped out of the car, picture this, it's really pretty, and started dialing the phone, listening intently to see if I could hear it, and I couldn't. But then I realized it was in the bakery in front of me, the bakery I had been in earlier that morning. So I ran up to the glass and I peered in, and again I dialed the phone and I thought I heard something. And now I see way in the back, someone is baking, probably getting ready for the morning's croissants. And I start, of course, banging on the door, jumping up and down. And, you know, with my, with this phone in my hand, jumping up and down. So picture this, me, Miss Craftcast in front of the bakery door, uh, 1130 at night, in my flannel pajamas, in my down coat. (laughs) Oh, what can I tell you? So the man comes out and he starts like waving his hands, you know, no, come back tomorrow. He probably thought I was having like a pastry freak out or something, you know, in need at late at night. <sighs> oh, but I tried to, by sign language, say, no, my phone is in there and I dial it again and then he heard it ring. So now he's sort of getting from my charades what I, what's going on and he goes over and I see him open a drawer and pick up a phone and hold it up and I'm like, yes, that's my phone phone, please give it to me. He was still a little nervous, I have to tell you, to come unlock the door and give it to me. But he did. He did. And I was like, yes, that's my phone. I'm so excited. And there you go. So there's my review of that app. Find your iPhone. (laughs) It works. It's brilliant. I love it. It found my phone. It had a happy ending. So there you go. (sighs) I feel better that I've shared that with you now. Uh, and what else? I book, I'm even trying to um, include, well, I'm trying to go back to reading some fiction again. One of my loves that I don't make time for. Truth be told, I didn't read this book recently, but it's getting so much publicity because a movie's coming out. I'm so excited for this writer, Sarah Gruen, because I used to read her books. Uh, she wrote a lot about horses. I loved one she wrote called Flying Changes, if you're into horses and everything. I just loved her books. And then she came up with this book, Water for Elephants. And I remember her sending an email to all of us who were reading her horse books, you know, that she was excited about this and to please buy it and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, it's on the bestseller list and being turned into a movie. How exciting for her. But I highly recommend it. Uh, Basically, it's a story of a veterinarian student that, uh, I believe his parents die. And he, anyway, he goes off to, he goes off to join the circus and becomes the vet for this circus uh, that, you know, back when it was a traveling circus, that time period. It's a great book. Highly recommend that. Water for Elephants by Sarah Gruen. I don't know. Read it before the movie comes out because the book is really good. 
And then one other review I have is uh, a um, uh, film that I did on Netflix. Love that little Netflix on my iPad. And this one's called Note by Note, The Making of a Steinway Piano, L1037. That's the exact number of that particular piano. And it takes you from beginning to end of the making of a Steinway. I loved it. And I know other people who have loved it too. And it's, what's so great is it really, it's an old art, you know, it's, there's not so many of these making beautiful musical instruments. It's such a beautiful art. And, uh, all the pe- all the individuals that go into making of a piano and how much they, you have to love what you're doing and it really comes through. So I highly recommend that. And you can get it on Netflix, note by note, the making of Steinway L1037. So good. Okay. So who is today's guest? Uh, my guest today is uh, a man, his name is uh, PhD. He's uh, Mr. Eric Maisel. I always wonder how you should say that, doctor. I guess you can say Dr. Eric Maisel. Uh, he is an author, and he's a, uh, one of America's foremost creativity coaches, uh, You know, giving advice for people going through all kinds of dilemmas in their creative endeavors. And uh, he has a new book out, Mastering Creative Anxiety right? Hey, who doesn't need a dose of that? So he's on today with me and we had a great talk. I know you're going to enjoy that. But before we go to Eric, uh, I have a piece of music that I love. I love them. Uh, The name of the group is called Hello Goodbye. There you go. Hello Goodbye. Uh, The name of the song is When We First Met. So enjoy that piece of music and then come on back and I'll be chit-chatting with Mr. Eric Maisel. When we first met, your hour was long and brown, you had in shed. Cut it all off, and now it's long once again. Oh, oh, it's long once again. As I kept track of every haircut that we ever had, I could, I could see how long it had been. Oh, how long it had been.
Well, I'm very excited today to talk to my next guest, Mr. Eric Maisel, PhD and a well-known creative coach, author of numerous books. His new one is Mastering Creative Anxiety. Makes me a little nervous even just thinking of the title. Uh, 24 Lessons for Writers, Painters, Musicians, and Actors. Thank you so much, Eric, for coming on today and chatting. Great to be with you, Allison. So... I have to say, when I see the word anxiety, my palms do get just slightly cold. Now, why, oh, why, how do you even define creative anxiety? How do you define it? Anxiety is a natural human phenomenon, and everybody experiences it in various degrees, and we know whether it's, you know, fear of flying or number one phobia, fear of public speaking, whatever it is, we know we can get anxious. Creative people experience it in many more situations, and often more violently. Because they're putting themselves on the line more. If public speaking is a number one phobia, you can imagine what singing an opera is like or performing a concert. I didn't realize that. Public speaking is number one, huh? More than spiders, flying mice, anything you can name, it's public speaking, which is pretty interesting, isn't it? It is. Now, why why is that? We don't like to get our ego bruised. That seems to be the thing we like the least. And when we put ourselves out there, it just has that feeling of being up there naked, ready to be criticized and rejected and abandoned and all of those big words. But then is it the opposite side of it, the hope that the other side will, uh, the feeling will come up that it's also a high? Well, we certainly, we certainly have those um, expectations and hopes, but what mostly goes on in that moment is dread. It is really, <laughs> that's what mostly goes on. And most people don't have a good grip on their mind and can't talk themselves down from that feeling. They can't sort of normalize the situation and understand how little is at stake most of the time and how many opportunities we get and how each individual opportunity isn't that big a deal. I know. I was seeing something you said about that. If we thought less of all the different things we're trying to do, it would be easier not put the importance on it. Absolutely. And most, most creative people have trouble thinking in terms of a body of work. They're very attached to the thing right in front of them, naturally enough. And so they, they overinvest in that thing in front of them. They forget that the truth of the creative process is that some percentage of the things we do won't work. Yeah. And yeah, nobody, yeah. nobody wants to really believe that. Everybody intellectually gets that, but they don't really want to believe it. And who would? Who wouldn't want to think that the thing in front of you is going to turn out well, but only some percentage of those things will turn out well? Um, my first public speaking engagement was a disaster, and it was it took <laughs> days to get over forever. And then the second one was fabulously successful, and then I was over, and the feelings were gone an hour after. So, That's it's right. like my my first uh, book signing wasn't a disaster in the sense that I flubbed anything because I had prepared this bizarre, boring speech, <laughs> and it was probably the most boring book signing that a human being's ever been to. <laughs> in his or her life. <laughs> but, you know, we get better at these things, especially if we're mindful and we learn from our experiences. If we don't learn, we can keep repeating the bad experience and oh, yes. getting anxious. But, you know, if we do learn, we say, well, that didn't work. I think I should do X, Y, or Z. Then we can get better. Now, you just used the word mindful. How, how do you define that? I think it's just being aware, especially of the things we say to ourselves, just being aware of how our mind works. Uh, The Buddha said, get a grip on your mind. I think it's a useful phrase. And cognitive therapists teach uh, really a straightforward, smart, little three-step process for being more mindful or getting a better grip on your mind. The first step is just to notice what you say to yourself, which is 
an act of courage because we're tricky creatures. Yeah. You know, we just don't want to know what we're saying to ourselves. And sometimes we're saying things like, you know, I'm an imposter, I'm not talented. It's right. straightforward, negative stuff. Right. But often we're saying things that sound like the truth, but that what we're saying them to get off the hook, things like I'm too busy and I'm too tired, which just sound like the truth nowadays, but they often are ways of not getting our work done. So the first step is to hear what we're saying, and the second step is to dispute those utterances that don't serve us. It's not about the truth or the falsity of something. Something may be true, but we still may want to dispute it. You know, it may be true that we're tired, but we still may want to say, yeah, I'm tired, but yeah. I could spend half an hour on my novel. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah. know, and then the third step is just to substitute more affirmative language. Most people are just very self-unfriendly with their language, and they have to get better at saying kind things to themselves. You know, that's a very good point. I forget about that one. We get used to beating ourselves up that way, I guess. We do, and, you know, we, we remember our failures much better than our successes, and all day long we're, we're usually saying subtle things to ourselves that are negative and that knock us. Yeah, 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 yeah. But don't you think once you're also in that sort of creative spot, I call it like the creative flow, the anxiety leaves? It does, um, and it's hard to get in that flow. It's getting into it, yeah. It is, and, and also when, when you are... Um, disrupted when you're distracted by something and come out of it, it's hard to go back into it. Yeah, yeah. One of the basic reasons is that every single thing a creative person does is a choice, whether to put on a little red or a little blue, whether to send your character to you know Paris or Zanzibar. It's one choice after another, and right. choosing provokes anxiety. Right. You know, even if it's just choosing, you know, what you know, what dress to wear, what cereal to eat, what car to buy, anything under the sun provokes anxiety. And this is one choice after another. There's no not choosing. So when you think of it that way, then you begin to see why there's so much ambient anxiety floating through the creative process, because there's no getting around having to make one choice after another. Yeah, that's a, I never thought about that way. It's a very good point. Being, uh, having worked in the creative field my whole life, it was all about you're responsible for making the choices. And yet, yeah. when I would go out to dinner, I would beg anyone else to order for me. I just couldn't deal with it. But now I know a, why. You enough of it. Yes, I think exactly. that's really true. Yes. And I think that's why um, artists are often so vulnerable to uh, being led astray, <laughs> because they really want to stop choosing at a certain point. You know, if you've just yeah. come off the stage of a Broadway musical having danced for three hours... You really don't want to think about much of anything. You can't go right to bed because you're wired. You're, you're full of I adrenaline. Know. Yep. Full of adrenaline. And so, and, you know, if somebody says, are you up for this? You go, sure, because you just don't want to think another thing. Yeah. So if that, are you up for this, is a bad thing, then you may end up doing a lot of bad things. Right. No, I, I, my son happens to be that exact person you just described, so I'm very well aware of and myself doing live things as well, that uh, adrenaline rush after the uh, spending that much time. That's right. Choosing, as you and said. And people don't quite understand how much adrenaline is produced by the creative process and by putting ourselves out there. And we also, we don't have a good sensory system to distinguish between excitement, adrenaline excitement, and anxiety. So often we're telling ourselves we're anxious when in fact we're excited and vice versa. So I agree. You know, we're just not terrific. At, and that's another piece of mindfulness is just getting smarter about what's actually going on, sort of if one can, to have that third eye that, that looks at you and tries to figure out what's going on in a given situation. No, I love that, because excited is something you, can, I, you think you can deal with easier than saying anxious. That's right. And, it may, and that may be the truth also. Right. It may be misnaming right. all kinds of excitements as anxieties to no good end. 
Yeah, absolutely. But don't you think also that that's what I meant before, where that um, adrenaline thing that also gets to be the addiction there. It is a high. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, we're chasing. We have many motives for creating. You know, it may be to. I think the primary one is to make meaning because I think some people pop out of the womb sort of stubbornly iconoclastic, and they just want to make their own meaning, and they. Come and they kind of come into the world, and they look at their parents, and they say, who are these people, and right. why are they doing these things? And, you know, I want to go my own way. And so by 3, 4, 5, they're ready, ready to go their own way. And that's, I think, the primary mechanism for creativity is that it's the place that some people want to make their meaning. But then there are tons of other motives, like becoming famous and making money and this, that, and, the other, and, and having that adrenaline rush and what have you. So it's a complicated package of motives. But what is the point? Really, what is the point? Having spent years of going through this, um, th- when your brain says to you, uh, it's not working, this isn't good, always in the creative process, and that drill goes through. Now, I've spent enough years to know, oh, I'm right in the process, this is going brilliantly, if I hear that voice also going on as well. Is, it, is that the anxiety? Is that that place? You know, it's a, it's just such an odd contrast all the time, but maybe it's out of mm-hmm. the contrast that great things are born that way. Well, I, you said a few things in there. If I can tease apart just the first one about what's the point, um, I, the way I hold this is that human beings have many meaning opportunities. They have to make meaning. Mm-hmm. Time to stop seeking it. We just have to stay put and make meaning. Mm-hmm. But we have a lot of meaning opportunities, and, and creating is one of them, but it's not the only one. So I think... Making a life just based on creating will lead you to that place of asking, what's the point? But if you make a life based on the, let's say, two dozen primary meaning opportunities that exist, whether it's relationships or service or creating or one thing and another, if you pull from that menu, then creating has its place in a life, Mm -hmm. and you understand what the point is. The point is that it's one of your meaning-making opportunities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so if you can get the kind of balance that, that I'm trying to articulate in your life, then it makes better sense to you how writing that novel fits in your life. It's not the only mm. thing that matters, but it does matter as one of the many things that matter. That makes sense. Is balance key to get helping uh, <clears throat> work with anxiety? Balance is a key, but balance is a funny word. And People have to get their idiosyncratic understanding of what balance means for them because, you know, for a Picasso, you might paint for 48 hours straight and then collapse for a day. Right. That doesn't sound like balance, right. but that might be your method. Right. So it's not, you know, some you know, golden mean, golden rule kind of thing. It's much more idiosyncratic. And because creative people often have to work very hard and in order to succeed, they have to prove the exception they often have to exhaust themselves in, in service of their work. So that doesn't sound like balance either. No. So what you have to do there is maybe you have to exhaust yourself, but then you have to know how to rest and recuperate. So it's a complicated concept. You know, it's not just a sort of down-the-middle thing. It's more complicated than that. It certainly is. It certainly is. I think sometimes people who are living uh, totally creative lives, meaning their work, as well. Uh, I know sometimes, you know, you might wish, I wish I could just do nine to five and not do this 24 hour day after day, just like you described. Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) And also uh, people who are most productive and most creative often have trouble with relationships for just the reason you said. One of the reasons is that, that their work is on their mind all the time. 
And the other is that their creativity may mean more to them than the person sitting across from them at the dinner table. Right. And so a lot of creative people have to sort of make a decision, as opposed to it being natural. They have to make a decision to make relationships count enough, because they, they must count or else you get too cold. You, you live sure. too cold a life sure. if you don't let relationships matter. So you have you have to create if that means something to you, but you also have to relate. And you have to, again, we can use a balance word. You have to figure out how to keep them in balance or at least have, how to get them both on the table. Yeah, both on the table sounds right. Easier than thinking balance. At least they're mm-hmm. looking at both of them. Well, I like this quote that I found from you that said, a creative block is the wall we erect to ward off the anxiety we suppose we'll experience if we sit down to work. And there's a lot of wasted time in that one. Yeah, um, often, well, I think the easiest way to think about it, it, since everybody's had this experience, is that horrible term paper in college where you procrastinated for three months and then you, (laughs) and then finally the deadline was there and you cracked through the resistance and you wrote it in an hour and a half and you you didn't have a clue what was taking you so long. So this is what I'm talking about here. We often build up this huge wall about how difficult the thing is in front of us and how much anxiety we're going to experience if we do it. And then once we crack through, as you said before, we go into the trance of working and there's no anxiety at all. Right. We just go to that quiet mind place and work for an hour and everything is splendid. Right. So it's cracking through everyday resistance that's one of the big tasks for a creative person. I try to sell the idea, if you actually have trouble with this, if you're, not getting, if you're getting your work done, you don't need any advice. But if you're not getting your work done and you're having trouble cracking through on a daily basis, then I will have both the coaches I train and my clients do the following thing. Have them get an egg in a bowl and a spoon, an egg in a shell and a raw egg, and crack it and drop it into the bowl. Because I think that's the closest I've come to in decades of doing this of experiencing viscerally what it feels like to crack through resistance. Hmm. So if you need a kind of ceremony or device mm-hmm, or tactic or strategy, you can try that one. And it actually works on two levels because you will experience cracking through and typically you'll get right to your work. And then you go into the trance of working, you work a while, maybe a truck rumbles by and you come out of the trance of working. That's when creative people often want to flee. They don't want to go back right. again. right. But now you've got your egg and your bowl and your spoon, and if you just will stir that mess for a few seconds, you'll calm yourself down right. and remind yourself that it's just a tendril of anxiety that's making you want to flee. And it gives you the opportunity of having a second creative stint and a third creative stint, whereas most people only work for one stint, and then they come out of the trance of working and they leave. I've, got, I've done all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say I've gotten pretty good, though. My thing is, and it's actually the tag phrase for this show, is get your butt in the chair and keep crafting. I find if you just put your butt in the chair. There's nothing like showing up. And one of my phrases is you want to show up and not attach to outcomes. Yeah, yeah. You know, because people naturally enough want the thing in front of them to work, as I said previously, but you just can't attach to the outcome. It's much more important to just show up. Right. And I try to sell clients on a morning creativity practice, on on doing that showing up first thing each day before their regular day starts. And, of course, that's difficult for people to get their heads around, but it's the best thing to do, and there are three distinct and important reasons for that. One is obviously you'll get some work done. That's a big reason. (laughs) 
<laughs> not that's not a bad reason. Right. The second is you get to use your sleep thinking. You probably know that we we dream in REM sleep, but in non-REM sleep we think a lot, and we do some of our best thinking in non-REM sleep. But as soon as we turn to the day, that's gone. Whatever you know, if we had you know, figured out what Mary wants to say in Chapter 3 in our sleep, that's gone the second we start thinking about our day. Right. So if you have a morning creativity practice, then you get to process and use your sleep thinking, and that's a big deal. And then the third reason is you will have the experience of having made some meaning on that day already, and the rest of the day can be half meaningless and you won't get depressed. (laughs) That's good, too. It's a really big deal because if you try to operate in life the other way, where all day long you're getting a little bloop because you're doing one stupid thing after another, by the end of the day, you're not just tired, but you also have gotten yourself pretty blue. Yes, Because you haven't made any meaning on that day. But if you flip that around and start your day off by making some meaning, then you can attend to your boring errands or what have you, and it won't matter because you will have built up some meaning capital on that day. Yeah, that's a good point. Make, yep, yep, I understand. Now, I think, well, this is my personal feeling, I think that's somehow also chemical in your body as well as emotional. I mean, I know for me, if I exercise and run, my creativity level goes skyrockets. There are all kinds of well-known, let's call them home remedies, <laughs> for feeling better and improving our overall well-being. Exercise is one of them. Sunlight is another. For people who go through horrible winters, getting one of those artificial sun things can actually make a big difference. Yeah, I I agree. You know, showers, that seems to do some ion work. You know, so there are all all kinds of practical things, and I think people do want, um, you know, a, a menu or a repertoire of things to do to help them get them in the right frame of mind to get their creating done. Yeah, and... I just, well, here's my next question. It's sort of in light of that um, that comes with exercise. I mean, I think there's a creative cycle. So, you know, there's some times where if you're not feeling particularly creative, I think that's part of the creative cycle. It it is, comma, but uh, I think what you said earlier almost trumps that, and it's still important to show up. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. even, if you, even if you understand your cycles in, in such a yes. way that you understand that you're not all there for these three days. Tchaikovsky said it nicely. He said, every day that I show up, even if nothing um, gets done beautifully on that day, I know it's serving the fourth day when, uh, when a beautiful melody will come to me. Oh, that's good. You know, so even, yeah, if you're good. Sitting, you know, even if you're sitting there sort of bad-mouthing yourself and bad-mouthing the day, if you can remind yourself that you're, that you're probably building a really useful muscle um, that will help you understand why you're doing that. James Jones, you may remember the novelist from a long time ago, mm-hmm. who did, you know, from Here to Eternity and other books, made a ton of money. And his friends were always bugging him and said, if we had your money and your time, we could write just like you. And he said, yeah, sure. So he gave them all money, and not a, not a one of them wrote. Well, yeah, I'm not surprised. Because they hadn't been writing. They yeah, had no writing right. muscles. They already right. hadn't been writing, so naturally they weren't going to you know, start writing. Right. So it's really important that we, you know, exercise that muscle and show up. So even if we know our rhythms and even if we know it's going to be sort of a goofy day in the studio, to still show up. You know, I think that's a really important thing that people forget, that it's a muscle just like anything else that has to be uh, worked. It's a muscle and also it's an organization of neurons. You know, our brain wants to think about one thing deeply at once. 
and we hardly ever give it the chance. We're always thinking so many small things all day long. By small, I mean need to pick up the kids at three and right, for right, dinner and right. those kinds of thoughts, and all of them steal neurons. And because they steal neurons, we, we rarely have our whole, whole brain available. But if we get in the habit of creating what I call productive obsessions, namely really biting into something, something juicy and staying with it, then our neurons will organize around that uh, project and will go into that project much more deeply than we otherwise would. And because, because our neurons have now organized themselves in that way, our brain wants us to show up each day. It wants mm, to be working mm-hmm. on this thing. Right, right. And so that's, that's another sense of that's sort of a neuronal muscle view of it. That's very interesting. Don't you think that's even harder today with what's going on, which all the things that I love, social networking and Facebook. Getting harder and, all the time, isn't right. it? Yeah. I, I just did a book well, a couple of years ago now, I think it was, called um, Creative Recovery with an Addiction Specialist. Uh, Susan Raymond's her name. And we had a little chat-debate about should we include distraction addictions? You know, Should we include that category as a real addiction, or was that not using addiction in the right way? And ultimately, we decided not to use the phrase, but I think it's coming awfully close to being true that there are all of these distraction oh, addictions. I think that's true now, especially yeah. with younger people. And I mean, because of the business that I do here at Craftcast, I, I spend a lot of time in it as well. But uh, we're always holding an electronic device, you know, that's right. <laughs> texting or chatting or um, it's it's. Uh, I saw that I was on public transportation yesterday coming from San Francisco to my home. And I was just sort of stunned as shocked, not that young people were on their electronic devices for the whole ride, but that every person of every class and of every age and of every ethnic persuasion of every everything <laughs> was on their electronic device. That kind of floored me. It's true. I'm one of them. If I'm not, if I, I have to really switch gears because if I don't have an electronic device within a hand's reach, I get a little anxious. Yeah, I do. I really do think it's you know preventing lots of juicy big ideas from arising because it was often Mozart, for instance, most of his music came to him on carriage rides. Well, now he'd be texting, right? And right. He, there would be no opportunity for symphonies to arise in him. Right. Yeah. So, it's it's finding that kind of time. Uh, and I, you know, I do think what's happening though. I don't know how you've seen it, but people burn out and then you have to like drop out and escape from all of it because I think our natural being needs to get away from it. There's that. And also in, in the creative disciplines, what often happens is, here's a, just a quick thumbnail of what often happens. In your teens, you kind of expect that you're going to be able to pursue your creative life. Then you have conversation with your folks right in your senior year of high mm-hmm. school where they say, it's wonderful you're, that you're creative. Now pick a sensible major. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. And then you go into college, and you're in conflict about which way to go, you know, fine arts versus graphic arts or, you know, whatever. You have these conflicts, and then you make a decision. And let's say you've gone for the arts. Well, then you hold a dream out for yourself. Often that dream often can last from the late teens to the early 30s, where you're doing, you know, doing your waitressing and, and mm-hmm. doing doing your day job, and then in your mid-30s, when your car doesn't run, you don't have health insurance, and the whole thing hits the fan, so to speak, I think that's um, the quintessential burnout-crisis moment Mm -hmm. in an artist's life, Mm -hmm. in his or her mid-30s. And that's when you see so much retooling into whatever coaching or business or this or that, Mm -hmm. people making a new decision about how they're going to cobble their life together. 
Yeah. Yeah, just to figure out how to fit in there. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it, it definitely makes sense. Well, I like um, in your book, I was reading someplace in there, and I picked up the phrase, making friends with anxiety, somehow mm-hmm. welcoming it, which makes sense because, you know, on the other side of anxiety is a breakthrough of uh, creativity. That and the attempt to avoid it is a bad attempt. Yeah, you can't yeah, really yeah, yeah. avoid it because one of the things that happens if you try to avoid anxiety is that you end up killing the creative process. Because you can, have, let's say you're, a, let's say you've decided to make stripe paintings, well, and you've figured out how to make one after another. Each one sort of looks the same, and no anxiety wells up in you anymore because you just know how to do what you're doing. Well, that may mean that you're doing no stretching. You know that you're not really creating anymore. That you've done. You've managed to deal with anxiety, but in this killing way. So it's much better to embrace anxiety and manage it than than to try to avoid it. Yeah, and that's a great, easy thing to understand as a way to look at something. It's like any skill to try and manage it. Mm-hmm. What is there a uh, uh, most important, a number one, the most common one that comes up, a way of managing? I think deep breathing is still number one. It's the simplest. Oh, really? It's okay. not, necessarily, not necessarily the best best, but it's the oldest and it's the simplest. Just five, five seconds on the inhale, five seconds on the exhale. A little deep breathing, some cleansing breath. That can do a lot of help. Mm-hmm. If you marry that with the cognitive work I was talking about earlier, namely if you do some deep breathing and also drop a useful phrase in there like I'm perfectly fine or I feel supported or I trust my resources, some phrase you like, you can marry the smartness of cognitive work with the benefits of deep breathing and, and create kind of beautiful little package there. And then there are tons of other things. Preparation is important. Reorienting is important. <clears throat> Excuse me, reorienting is important, meaning let's say the audience is filing in, turning away from listening to the audience and just looking at a notice on, the, on a bulletin mm-hmm, board mm-hmm, in, in the green room. Mm-hmm. There's something called discharge techniques like silently screaming, you know, where you don't actually scream, but you make a big screamy face and you know, let let the bile out that, that way. There are physical relaxation techniques. So there are a ton of opportunities. And I think in the book I cover 22 different categories of them. Obviously no human being is going to learn 22, but you need one or two that work. Yes, I was it, looking through there. I was looking at the one, the anxiety of selling. That's a popular one with artists. Absolutely. And we, we can't even begin to talk about how much anxiety wells up when we, with respect to marketplace interactions. Right. Absolutely. So every creative person, and they don't really know this, but every creative person needs to own, meaning have thought through and practiced one or two anxiety management strategies so that they remember their name when they're talking to a literary agent. You know, or, you know that, that when the stress is really high, they may feel no, you know, in their day job, they may experience no anxiety. Maybe they're working with a budget of $30 million, but right. it's not their money and they don't care. Right, right, right. You know, but the second they get home and they have to, you know, field a phone call from a marketplace player, then they have no idea what's going on. The right. anxiety raises to such a high level. So we have to own a couple of those strategies if we're going to make it through the creative life. Yeah, no, I'm I re- remembering something, just you saying that, where I, when I felt anxious doing something, I was very good at the work with all of that, and I just pretended I was working, and then it made it easy. Mm-hmm. Just switched it right over. There's another one I notice with a lot of artists and crafters I work with, which is the overwhelm of how easy it is. People purchase so many supplies, and then they sit in supply deluge and not knowing where to start, and they own so so much. That's right. And a lot of that, of course, has to do with 
true visceral permission to make mistakes and messes. You know, people sit there oh. with those supplies. They don't want. They don't want they to don't use want them. The, they don't want to make a first bad stroke. Right. They don't right. want to right. make a mess. Right. And the people have to get over that. They, it's true. You have to move from, you know, all day long, we're supposed to do things right, you know, drive on the right side of the road and balance our checkbook and right. pick up our kids at three. And and then a moment is supposed to come where we have this permission to make mistakes and messes. And for most people, it's really hard to make that transition from one mind space to the other. It is. It is. That's one that definitely takes practice, willingness to keep doing that. And, yep. And choose something whether whether you like it or not. So, well, I also love what you said. Uh, creativity is a roller coaster ride of emotions. You have to be willing to get on that ride, too. <laughs> That's right. You know, it's funny. People will say, I'm willing to take a risk, and then they don't want it to feel risky. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's really good. People, people use that phrase all the time. My clients use it all the time, but they don't, really actually, they don't actually want it to feel risky. That and is so, so funny. That is good. I used to have a, an office with a rug in it, and I'd have people stand at the edge of the rug and try, sort of visualize a 20,000-foot drop or something. I was trying to get the experience of actually doing something risky into the room because people will say, you know, well, they'll say it. I'm happy to take that risk, but they don't mean it. There you go. There it is right there. I mean, you know, listen, it isn't, we, we would prefer to always be sort of cozy, snuggled up. That's right. <laughs> so, <laughs> but there is, there is that addiction to doing that risk. At least I find that. It's like, mm, it's a little bit of a high to do that risk, but that is very funny. Yeah, I want to do something. Well, I think, that's another, I think that's the other sort of person. That may be the highly productive, highly creative person who really doesn't even see it as a risk, really, just keeps wanting to do the next thing come hell or high water. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I tend to fall into that category, even though mm-hmm. then I do like to you know, get cozy and not leave the studio and not mm-hmm. touch anything and just let it all sit there. So <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe that's the balance. I don't know. Well, I love chatting with you and this is one of my favorite subjects. And so your book is Mastering Creative Anxiety, 24 Lessons, Writers, Painters, Musicians, Actors. I think it's wonderful. Thank you so much, Eric, for coming on and chatting with me today. And let's tell everyone your website so that they can come. Sure. It's ericmazel.com, E-R-I-C. M-A-I-S-E-L dot com. And if they want to get in touch with me, it's ericmazel at hotmail.com. There you go. And everyone can come over to the CraftCast site to get that link so you can find Eric and get read up all on how to handle your own <laughs> creative anxiety there. So thank you so much, Eric. It was a Thanks pleasure talking to you. Sure thing. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that. I know I did. I know I did. Always get a lot of great information from the guests here at the CraftCast studio. So if you want to check out more uh, from Eric Maisel, you can check out again his website, www.ericmaisel.com. That's E-R-I-C-M-A-I-S-E-L.com. Or you can come over to www.craftcast.com and get the links to find all those things. Check out his new book, Mastering Creative Anxiety. Lots of great exercises in there. Yes, breathe. Mm -hmm. Part of the ET entertaining thoughts section of the show today is remembering to breathe. And I have just one little funny thing. I will try to um, paraphrase this that someone told me, which was a wise sage exclaimed, I have so many things I must accomplish today, so many things more than usual, that I will have to spend twice as much time meditating. Oh, yes, I like the irony of that. It has a lot to do with breathing. So there you go. 
another week here in the Craftcast studio. Hope you enjoyed all that. Make sure you come over to the uh, Craftcast site, www.craftcast.com, where we have lots of fabulous recordings for sale, where you can learn all kinds of wonderful uh, crafting tips. They're all approximately 90 minutes in length, uh, and they sell for $34.95. You can download them immediately to your desktop, so you can learn whenever the moment strikes you, the urge strikes you. Um, as well as you can always leave me a message at 877-819-1859. I love hearing from all of you. Uh, and then make sure you come back next week when my guest is Harriet Estelle Berman. She's a pretty wonderful artist. Check her out now. I'm just saying. Very excited to chat with her. So there you go. Another week here from the Craftcast studio. And you know what I have to say. Get your butt in a chair. And keep crafting. Just get yourself right into your chair. Come on, listen. You can learn to create something new. It starts inside you.